Hello, and welcome to another episode of Watching With from Netflix. Today we have a very special guest. We are joined by the extraordinary writer and director of Glass Onion, A Knives Out Mystery. Welcome, Ryan Johnson. Hello, Netflix. So let's dive right in. I'm going to let Ryan count us down, and when you hear him snap his fingers, hit play. Take it away. So here we go. Three, two, one. Hello, this is Ryan Johnson. I wrote and directed Glass Onion. Uh, you probably know that because you went <laughs> you went to the trouble of getting this this uh, in the home theater commentary track. Um, so uh, this little bit with the fugue at the beginning that was actually kind of the starting point for the whole movie was the notion of the fugue structure that it does. I guess I should also say, please, I hope that everyone's seen it already who's listening to this. I will be talking spoilers. Uh, so so if you please don't listen to it for the first, see it for the first time with me yakking over it. Um, anyway, so the fugue structure of showing the movie, doing a reset at the midpoint, and then uh, showing that same sequence of events again, but through a different lens. That was kind of the very first idea. And um, starting the thing, very straightforward, kind of like showing you uh, the fugue. And then in a few scenes from now, having Yo-Yo Ma explain uh, the fugue structure, that seemed like a very honest way of beginning things. And then when we do that reset in the middle, kind of bringing the fugue back. Uh, we saw Catherine Hahn, and also that was my assistant, Adele Frank, as her assistant. Uh, Adele was very excited that a few people texted her after they saw the movie, thinking that was Anna de Armas doing a cameo, and uh, that was that was quite cool. Uh, and so here we meet Leslie Odom Jr.'s character for the first time, and um, these are also an assortment of friends of mine on the Zoom call. My friend Dilcia, friend Coco, friend Mark, who actually works at SpaceX, and. Uh, also, my buddy Eddie Goroditsky, uh, and right there, that's Eddie, and Dan Sheridan, uh, who is the next guy who's going to wince. Oh, he's, Dan is a good wincer. Uh, so the notion of these, uh, these faxes, I remember I had a lot of fun <laughs> kind of riffing. I think Edward really got into the notion of riffing what all, all of Miles's faxes would be. So that entire pile of faxes is actually filled with alternate ideas <laughs> of of all the wacky stuff that uh, Miles could have, could have like thrown against the wall. Uh, Dan is recording from our T Street offices, our production offices. So that's just uh, that's what our offices look like. So Birdie J, played by the great Kate Hudson and uh, Jess Hennick, the W is silent, Hennick as her assistant Peg. This was shot in Belgrade. Um, we shot all the location stuff uh, in Greece, but then we came back to Belgrade and built these sets and shot all the interiors. And um, also, because we were shooting in the middle of COVID, it was the Delta surge that was happening. So a lot of these people are also like <laughs> friends and crew members and stuff. That's actually, yeah, yeah. I can spot a lot of a lot of friends in, of the family <laughs> in in the background here. And 
yeah, the way that these two played off of each other. I also like we Jess and I had the idea that uh, Peg resents Birdie so much that Peg tries to dress as unfashionably as possible just to spite Birdie. <laughs> so that led to fanny packs and uh, and lots of lots of tivas. This guy right here was it's one of my favorite little things in the whole movie just that moment i don't know why but i think in the script i wrote him as like a vampire in a tuxedo and we just found this fantastic uh local actor to come in and do that one bit yes uh so here's dallas roberts playing he's a fantastic actor who's playing uh playing claire's husband and um the idea came pretty early about structuring this opening sequence around the solving of the puzzle box. It's one thing with a whodunit is that can be kind of deadly is the introductions. You have to introduce everybody at the beginning. You have to get a sense of who they all are and kind of set the stage for the mystery. So in the first movie, um, I did that with a sequence where uh, Lakeith Stanfield's character is uh, questioning everybody in the library and then Blanc ends up questioning people. And so I did it using that as kind of the framing device. With this, the notion of it being a kind of mission-based thing of them all opening this puzzle box. And that was exciting to me because, first of all, it meant everyone was going to be at home so you could see them in their different environments and get an immediate sense of who these people were without them having to do a monologue and explain it. Um, it also meant that I could power through this introduction with an entertaining sequence that had a goal to it. And so narratively, it was all going somewhere and, and it had the fun of the puzzle box. Um, here's the great Dave Bautista and Madeline Klein, uh, Dave playing Duke. And you got to love all his unsold apexosity supplements junk. And originally, this scene went on longer, and we panned over to the right and revealed he was in front of a cheap blue screen, <laughs> and that background is fake, and like his 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 light is like taped to a <laughs> taped to a uh, um, vacuum cleaner, uh, and the great Jackie Hoffman right here playing his mom. Once you know Jackie Hoffman. If you keep your eyes open, you will see she's everywhere. She's in all the best stuff. Uh, she's just an incredible character actor. And she showed up in Belgrade. And because we were ahead of schedule, she got off the plane in Belgrade, came straight to set and shot her scenes. She's such a pro. And she just kind of, just kind of nailed it. This took a while. The idea of the magic eye thing, which I grew up loving as a kid, but doing this effect and communicating it, this shot right here, that took quite a while of dialing that in, trying to figure out how in a one-dimensional space to kind of duplicate in a way that you'll recognize it. Um, I should talk about the puzzle box also. The puzzle box is uh, is practical. Uh, Chris Peck, who was our props master, worked with a bunch of really talented craftspeople to create these physical puzzles and create the actual box. And we digitally painted out some hinges and some puppeteering rods. But um, other than that, everything that you see here is an actual physical thing. I think it gives it kind of a tactile feel that's that that's very fun. Um, this was also was fun because I love our vampire guy leaning in here on the left. This was fun because it was the last week of shooting. And so the very final thing that we did was, uh, was do this split screen sequence. And, um, I had it all storyboarded, but, um, 
timing wise, it was interesting because we, we shot all the things separately. That's a compass. Uh, we shot all the things separately. So what we had to do was we shot, um, Catherine's part first and we had Leslie and Kate and Dave off screen feeding her lines. See there on the left. That was the first thing that we shot of her. And, uh, then we cho- chose her takes for those ones, and then we would play that take back in Kate's ear and have Leslie there on set performing, and then we chose Kate's take, and so on and so forth. Yo-Yo Ma. So he's not here. He's th- We shot his part, I'm giving away movie magic, months and months after we shot the scene. So Jess was just looking off screen there at nothing, and uh, Yo-Yo Ma came in and sat in front of a green screen and delivered his lines to a tennis ball on the C-stand uh, for Jess. So he did. what I'm saying is he did a fantastic job and uh, in a very high degree of difficulty just walking onto a blue screen stage and delivering these lines. This was the last shot that we shot in the movie right there, that thing going down, and the thing broke down. The motor that spun it broke so it was literally the last night of the last shoot. I had a flight out in the morning and we were all gathered around this thing while they messed with the motor and tried to get in, kept almost stopping at the right spot, but being a little bit off. And I think when we finally got it to kind of stop at the right spot and click down, there was a big cheer and we were done shooting the movie. So this was it. See that right there? There are actually puppeteers with rods closing the thing up from the sides, but that's all we painted out, and we kind of cleaned up the seams after it closes. Here, too, we just took out some of the hinges on the side, but that that beautiful thing that's actually designed, um, yeah, that's actually, that was all there, which was which was quite fun to do. One thing that I really love is um, it's telling the audience what you're going to do and then doing it. I love the fairness of that. It's something that um, uh, Christopher Nolan does incredibly well. One of my favorite movies of his, The Prestige, the fact that it tells you, you know, watch carefully and listen click closely. And then the first 30 seconds of the movie explains what the entire movie is going to be. I, I absolutely love that. And I mentioned it with The Fugue before, but this is another example of it, what's about to happen here. The notion of this intricate puzzle box that seems very delicate and intricate and everyone puts all this thought into it. And then we meet Andy and Andy just grabs a hammer and smashes it open. And that is essentially what happens. Actually, although I'm wrong, we're meeting Helen here. We don't know it yet, but um, the very deliberate thing of having her hair wrapped so that... um, so that even though you, you, if you go back and rewatch it, you realize, oh, this is actually Helen um, who's about to bust it up. I think we had like three takes of this and <laughs> Janelle just went to town. We augmented it. We put a little bit of CG stuff flying out, but there was, there was a, a lot of, there's a reason she's wearing those goggles. <laughs> there was a lot of balsa wood flying out of that thing. <laughs> Janelle Monet, I just think, is her performance in this movie. For however many times I've watched and rewatched it, I feel like I just keep finding new layers to what she's done. And kind of the blazing anger in this moment that she has in the way that 
before you know, it applies to Andy. And then after you know, it applies to Helen and to what she's thinking with the shitheads. Um, Janelle just did such an amazing job. So this scene was actually a reshoot. This is something that we went back. Oh, Stephen Sondheim, Angela Lansbury, Natasha Leone, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, all kind of with a connection to the mystery genre and all just kind of uh, imagining who I would love Blanc to be friends with. It's this crew. And I feel so lucky that I got to shoot these little cameos with Mr. Sondheim and this is Lansbury. It was, it was just, yeah, I feel very lucky. Anyway, we, this, this was originally a different scene. Um, it still had the Among Us gag in it. It still had the cameos, but it just took place in Blanc's office. And it was a little goofier. And, and Daniel and I got the movie put together, and we, 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 we both kind of thought, you know, it could use something at the beginning that grounds Blanc a little bit more and gets you inside his head a little more. Because in the first half of the film... He's playing a part. He's being kind of goofy and he's sort of being fanboyish in order to draw all these people out. And you don't realize he's doing that till the halfway point of the movie. So having a scene where you get inside his head a little bit more and you see the seriousness of I'm losing my mind, I need a great case. Um, it felt actually really important for Blanc's character. And once we went back, we built this little set in New York and we I flew out and we shot this scene. And once we got that in the movie the whole thing felt like it kind of clicked a little bit better. And I love that hat. Bum, 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 bum. Nathan Johnson's score. My cousin Nathan. We've been making movies together since we were 10 years old. Um, there is a theme to uh, the original Death on the Nile by Nina Rota, and it's an amazing, beautiful, lush theme. And that was kind of the reference point I gave Nathan and um, he just created this score. I think it's, it's, it's my favorite score of his. It's big and romantic and also mysterious. And it's a movie movie score. It's a very melodic, it's not tonal. It's a very mel melody based score. Um, and that way it's kind of a throwback. And I just, I, I just love it. This was the first uh, scene that we shot. This is, this is day one of the movie, which was, really nice because you know all these actors they're all yeah they're all movie stars they've all carried their own films and they all showed up excited to be part of an ensemble and it was very interesting seeing them work on day one because as you can see with this scene it's structured so that we introduce them one at a time and everyone gets their entrance um, and a big part of an ensemble working in a movie like this is tonally everyone playing it at about the same level and seeing all these great actors watching they for me it was like it was like being in in acting school watching everyone because I saw them watching each other as each new person was introduced they were they were there before and they're watching the person before and, and everyone was kind of gauging each other's level of performance and sort of dialing into that and very quickly on this first day um everyone kind of got into the pocket uh i love jess back there holding up the uh the garment bag that we there was a deleted scene that we had um, where, where Birdie like tells her, you can't let that bend, it'll break, like whatever the dress is. So, so Jess is holding it up the whole time. And here comes Dave Bautista as Duke. Luckily, Dave is a great motorcycle 
uh, aficionado, so he was able to actually actually ride that thing. And Jess Hennick. And having this kind of like, you know, introducing the characters. The, the scene was originally much longer. We, end, we actually cut quite a bit out of this scene um, just because we've, my editor, Bob Ducey and I, we kind of realized we have already had this sequence where we've introduced everyone. We really want to get to the island at this point. So um, having this be kind of a fun, everyone shows up and then we're off. It's a bit, the scene also mirrors a bit um, one of my favorite movies, The Last of Sheila, which was co-written by Stephen Sondheim and Anthony Perkins. It's a fantastic whodunit from the 70s. And um, if you haven't seen it, track it down and see it. I keep banging the drum for this movie. It's a it's a very still underseen great murder mystery, but it, it starts off on a dock. And uh, this was kind of a little bit of a nod to that. Ethan Hawke was, we got very lucky. He was in we're hearing here we are in Greece he was in Budapest shooting uh the Marvel series um with uh Moon Knight with with Oscar Isaac and so we were able to lure him and his family over for for a weekend and he just came on day for this one set right he came on set for this one day and uh and just (laughs) this cameo is the efficient man that's how he's credited in the script is efficient man ah birdie's mask and i remember uh jenny egan showed me some mask options and they were kind of meshy but i said nope i want it to be (laughs) literally nothing i want it to be the most ineffective mask in the world also the idea of kind of communicating character through masks (laughs) that's one uh one benefit of incorporate of kind of brazenly incorporating um you know the pandemic into into this movie uh we obviously wanted to do it with a very light touch and kind of get past it very quick but when i realized we could have birdie J show up in that mask and you you instantly know what her deal is <laughs> this shot i remember dialing in so specifically it was like choreographing a dance with janelle on this first day and oh my god she's just so striking she doesn't say she doesn't have a ton of dialogue in the first half of the movie and so so much of what she had to communicate was just through presence this whole thing of shutting the door and i i told her it's like a western i want you to then take your ground like you're lining up for a duel in a western and i just think she's so strong it just communicates so much um just with her presence it's pretty amazing grace you know And I'm sure we're all, I think we're all ducked down like behind Daniel, (laughs) like on the, I'm there with like a little monitor on the boat, like hiding right behind Daniel as that flyover happens. Uh, But this was a fun day, uh, shooting out on, on this gorgeous yacht for like a day. Leslie, I love his costumes in this movie and uh, I'll probably call call out a bunch, our, our uh, incredible costume designer, Jenny Egan, but um, Leslie really worked with her on it. And I, I talked to Leslie a lot about this character, or about like his vision of this character. And he really wanted him to not be kind of like a typical kind of nerdy scientist. He wanted him to have a sense of style and he wanted him to uh, really have, have, have his own thing. And, and he worked with, worked with Jenny and I just think came up with these amazing distinct looks. So this is movie magic. This is uh, this island doesn't exist. That's that's kind of like a composite put together from different matte paintings and things. Um, we actually shot 
the uh and that's actually the captain of the boat he was awesome and he really didn't want to be in the movie and i had to beg him because he was so perfect and i'm just like it'll be fun i promise and i think he had fun uh but yeah we actually shot this on the mainland in greece this was actually shot at a place called uh Villa 20, which is, this is the Amanzoa Resort in Greece. Um, and this is kind of like the beach club. If you're lucky enough to go stay at the Amanzoa, you can go and hang out on this beach. Um, but uh, Villa 20, which is where Miles's, uh, Miles's lair is, is kind of like a attached to the resort, but it's its own thing. It's like a group of like eight villas that you have to rent together. And it's, it's run by this absolutely lovely couple, Bruno and Claudia, who um, kind of designed the thing. And it was just when we scouted and found this place, that's the whole reason we came to Greece. It's like, oh, this is too perfect. Edward Norton as Miles Braun. <laughs> With whiskey. And again, trying to speed through this because there's a little bit of like reintroducing everyone, but, but you're also hopefully getting the context of I love the little moment when Catherine first hugs him and you see her face when he's actually in for the full hug and you get the dynamics of each of these people bit by bit. We talked, Edward and I talked a lot about this moment where he first sees who he thinks is Andy, where he sees Helen here. And the idea is it plays on your first viewing as, oh my God, she showed up. Hopefully we've laid the groundwork for that with the conversation with Lionel on the boat. But what is actually going through his head right now, if you think about the, because we had to kind of like process this, what does he think, what does Miles think is happening in this moment? And I think the answer is, if you think about the method of the murder, he didn't poison her, he drugged her and then put her in the car with the engine running. So what's happening is he's thinking, oh no, she woke up. She, she, it didn't work. And, uh, and, and Andy has come back to reveal what he did in front of everyone. And so that, that's kind of the ticking time bomb that's gone off in his head at this point. Daryl, my buddy, Noah Segan, who I've had in all my movies, he plays Trooper Wagner in the first, uh, in, in Knives Out. And, uh, <laughs> It started as kind of just a comic runner of, of lacing Daryl through. He's named after a, a good friend of mine, Daryl Fry from high school. And um, uh, the notion of just kind of lacing him through this whole thing <laughs> it ended up being uh, pretty funny. This is, I when I shoot, I tend to use wider lenses and I am always trying to use longer lenses. I feel like I always think they look so great when they're well used by other filmmakers. And so this is one of my favorite shots in the movie because it's an incredibly long lens. I love the way the shot evolves with the blocking over the course of it. And I just love graphically how it ended up playing and the fact that I put a long lens on and stuck with it. Very proud of myself. So this is Villa 20. This is what it actually looks like, minus all the glass stuff up, up top. That's that's movie magic. But um, but this grand, glorious staircase going up and all the villas off to the side, this is what the place actually looks like. Um, we added in, uh, Claudia would kill me if I didn't say that all anything that's garish that you see here, we added in. So the butt statue that you see later and any of the bad statues around are, are us. That's, that's not them. This place looks much, much more classy and less Miles Braunish in real life. The Daily Dong, 
that is uh, Joseph Gordon-Levitt doing the Daily Dong. You can see he's in the credits. I, uh, I just asked him to say the word dong into a microphone. And it's a little bit of a nod to the Noonday Gun, which is a plot element of one of my favorite uh, whodunits, uh, whodunit adaptations, uh, the film of uh, Evil Under the Sun with Houston off as Poirot. The Noonday Gun. <laughs> Sacral. There's a little line that Birdie has after she's off. And also Madeline finding little things to communicate that Whiskey completely has nothing but contempt for <laughs> Birdie. I found, I found pretty hilarious. Uh, Andy, in this first half of the movie, or Helen playing Andy sort of modeled on Mia Farrow in Death on the Nile, um, which Mia Farrow gives a fantastic performance in the original Death on the Nile, and she's very much the fly in the ointment of this vacation. She's the X factor of showing up and obviously has trouble on her mind. And that was a little bit of kind of the notion of how Andy was going to function in the first half. So this is a set, again, in Belgrade. Um, And so it was... All, all of the stuff you see out there was composited in, and um, this is a set that Rick Heinrich, our production designer, built um, on a stage in Belgrade. And uh, Rick, I worked with on The Last Jedi, and he's an incredible designer. He worked with Tim Burton on a lot of Tim Burton stuff, and he's Rick is amazing at doing grand scale designs that communicate character in a very very smart way. Um, and this whole thing of the car on the roof, I mean, originally this, th- that, this was actually kind of, we figured this out in prep because originally the scene was going to take place in Miles's exotic car garage. That's how it was originally scripted. And we realized, first of all, this beautiful set right here that Rick had built, it was only going to be used in a couple of scenes. And, uh, we also realized we were then faced with building an entire other set for this garage. So we we're trying to think, I was trying to think, ah, is there a way to set the thing in here, the, this scene in here, but I need to set up the car. That's actually really important. And then, yeah, I came up with the idea of, okay, so yes, the car on the roof. And then we can use that later on. I got really excited when I realized we could use it later on when everything blows up to drop the car through and destroy it. Um, and I love this first kind of like this this first scene between Blanc and Edward. And I I the layers that Daniel is putting in here, um, the fact that when, once you know the game he's playing and you can watch it through the lens of how Blanc is actually playing and Miles and kind of leading him, aha, <laughs> onto each 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 thing that it's it's i love I, I love seeing it in some ways I, I i feel like the movie is uh almost more designed to be watched a second time than the first one i feel like daniel's performance in this first half once you kind of know the game he's playing i should say also that um that kind of infinity cube crazy structure in the middle of this set that we started the whole shot like pulling out of that's um that's an absolutely beautiful actual piece of artwork that uh, 
and, and, and that it has like it, it it's practical basically like you can look into it and it's one way mirrors all the way around it with uh with lit rods inside and so it was wild on set because you actually stared into it and exactly what you see here it's not a visual effect exactly what you see is what you what you see when you when you look into them uh in the if there's a museum and beautiful museum in palm springs that has has one of these pieces if you want to go to Palm Springs and see it. So again, with the exception of the glass stuff, this is this is Villa Twenty. This is what it actually looks like. And uh, Kate Hudson, ladies and gentlemen. So it was uh, we 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 had a nice summer <laughs> having the run of this place and shooting here. Uh, poor Catherine, I think she was very excited to be in one of these mystery movies given that everyone always has fabulous costumes and uh and so she showed up and she walked into the costume department and Catherine walked past kate's rack with all these gorgeous colors and walked back leslie's rack with all those that beautiful green suit and benoit blanc's rack with like this and like all the glorious stuff and then she comes to <laughs> comes to the claire rack and it's just beige it's just tan beige boringness i think at some point uh i think i think at, at some point jenny and and uh catherine like put some beige like frill on the side of one of the outfits and i said uh eh, it feels a little fancy for claire <laughs> so it's just a, a one piece brown <laughs> and she came up with the thing of having the badly applied uh <laughs> The badly applied uh, sunscreen all over her, and then paying it off with uh, paying it off with the sunburn that she has throughout the rest of it. Dave Bautista, <laughs> what a sport! <laughs> that was the other. That was my other favorite thing about walking in the costume department was seeing Dave's speedo bottom laid out, and I think you could literally fit three of us inside of it. Uh, Kate's performance as, as, as Birdie, it's cause Birdie's a, you know, she's a very broad character. Um, and it takes an actor of incredible intelligence to take a character like this and actually make it not feel like just a cartoon, make it actually play. And, oh, you could just see right there the, the tape recorder fly into the bag, by the way, if you want to rewind. and Or maybe don't. You'll mess up the timing of this. But, we again, we play fair. We can actually see the thing go in. Anyway, this scene with, with Kate was very crucial. And, um, and the fact that she brings layers to Birdie and the fact that there's a sadness to Birdie and kind of her desperation um, and her survival instincts that you get that she's a survivor and that she... Um, she could actually be dangerous. All those things to layer them into a character like this and still have it be playing at the pitch that it plays in the movie, that takes uh, takes some incredible chops. That takes a, a pretty amazing actor. And Kate Hudson is um, is just an amazing comedic performer and, and just a great actor. I felt really, really lucky to have her in this part. So this scene... Uh, all of the stuff that takes place here in this setting, um, this whole disruptor speech Miles is going to give, Birdie's introduction here, uh, Andy coming in and breaking it up. We had one day to shoot all of this. 
So we had three cameras and we just kind of, the day is kind of a blur. <laughs> we kind of blazed through it all. Well, that's my main memory of shooting this scene is just how fast we had to move. Um, and that meant all the actors just had to have everything down pat. I mean, they all just showed up ready and we just had to kind of like set all our cameras up and, and blaze through it. Another great example of Blanc kind of playing the game. And uh, it's interesting talking to some people who have seen it, like the first time they see it, like feel, something feels kind of off about Blanc in the first half. And then when you realize what he's doing, I, I like that clicking in. There's a, uh, at some point we'll figure out a way to get it out there. There was a deleted scene we did, which was just kind of another example of, of Birdie. <laughs> uh, he, she mentions the co Halloween costume with, uh, right here with the Beyonce costume, but there was kind of another example of a horrible, <laughs> horrible thing that she did that, uh, that, that got her even more canceled. There was a little bit of like a cutaway flashback type thing that we cut out and, uh, it was, she was doing a read for the children library event, and it all went horribly wrong. <laughs> Uh, but for pacing, we took it out, but I'm hoping we can get it out there at some point. The very subtle sound design of when Duke sits down in that chair and the, uh, and also right there where he does his little boom, 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 and the sound of the springs of the chair going, rah, 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 that, that, that's the kind of stuff I just live for. <laughs> That fruit back on the table back there, over the course of the day, it started to rot <laughs> and the flies were just flying around it. It was, it was, yeah, it was, it was pretty fresh. This is also a good example if you look at, I mean, first of all, I just, I love Edward in this. Um, and there's a point where he's rolling with this where I probably should have cut away the close ups of people reacting. I just didn't, I just couldn't because I just found him really magnetic and, um, He's so good as Miles here. He's so committed. He's spouting this dumb bullshit and he truly, truly sells it. And Blanc's reaction. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, but I was going to say, Janelle here, another great example of playing multiple layers. The way that she works in what we're going to learn in the second half with Helen being a little tipsy. And Helen's true motivation for stepping up. When you watch it, watch it through here, it feels like it's Andy's anger spurring her to kind of take each of these people down. And it also absolutely works the second time you watch it and realize that she's also playing it as Helen trying to needle each one of these people into, into giving up the game a little bit more. It was also, everybody on set, it, it was a good vibe. It was just everybody kind of clicked. And it, again, all of these people, every single one of them um, are actors who've, you know, who carry their own movies and the support that they gave each other and the fact that they all just came together and truly gelled as an ensemble. Um, it was pretty amazing to see like people, I remember after like that take of, of Edward where he just completely nailed it just a round of applause from all the other actors. And, and with Dave later on, when Dave gave his big monologue, just everyone cheering him on. And there's just a tremendous amount of support between this group of people. And we all kind of got very close. I love that Peg is a Andy fangirl. <laughs> that Peg is obviously smitten with Andy throughout the whole thing.
one of my favorite uh, little murder mystery tropes is exactly this: the calling out the motive, and then and Catherine just nails it. The little looks from each one of them, of <laughs> actually they're you know being called out, and each one of any one of them could be a killer. And this this felt very important to kind of bring the audience back. We've had a lot of fun to, to bring everyone back in terms of this dynamic we're selling. It's a little bit of a false dynamic, but the notion of any one of these people is is ready to kill. And of course, at this point, the first time through, we assume it's going to be it's going to be Miles who gets bumped off. This was another tiny little thing that I love that Edward just did. Is this after the titties, <laughs> the cover up that was all him. Yeah, yeah, every single one of them, all these little, little details and how strong Janelle is in this scene. I just love it. Uh, it's, it, was, it was interesting in structuring this thing because, you know, the, the, if anyone has seen The Last of Sheila who's listening, you know, the basic setup of this is similar to The Last of Sheila. But it's also something that, it, it, you know, it's, it's also a bit like, it's not really like and then there were none, but it's, it's like several other things where, the you know somebody invites everybody out for like a murder mystery game and then they end up being the one that's that's murdered and um so the expectation of the first half in terms of it's obviously going to get miles is mr body he's obviously the one who's going to get killed here um not wanting to overplay that because not wanting it to feel just kind of like a cheap nah uh uh-uh, it's this but at the same time using that as kind of an element of tension that uh, can kind of draw the audience through really the first half of the movie where we're, we're just kind of waiting for the killing to happen and we're, we're still kind of getting all the pieces on the table, basically. Another great little moment of just the drunkenness kind of poking through in a way that you really recognize the second time you see it. Jess Hennick is hilarious she's she was also is incredible while we were shooting she was prepping a short film that she was making jess is also a filmmaker and um the fact that she was just (laughs) giving kind of her her everything to playing this part while she was also going through the stress of, of prepping a production of her of her first movie was uh um was was incredibly cool but i find her just hilarious in this (laughs) <laughs> also the framing of this is a great shot is a bit like uh in the blues brothers with the horns back behind them or uh it, I, framing that tree so that it was this big brain coming out of miles's head uh brought me great giggling joy on set <laughs> brain tree is that a bow finger is that what that was called no brain head i think or something mm. And who can resist a good butt joke? Bob Doucet, my editor, and I, <laughs> we kept adding frames to that shot of the butt. We're just like, how much butt can we get away with before it's too much butt? How much butt is too much butt? <laughs> Blanc, uh, one of the references... And you can see this in the costume, but you can also see it, I think, in his physical comedy that, that Daniel came ready with, Jacques Tati. And uh, 
in that opening sequence, he's basically wearing like a, a Mr. Hulot hat. He's basically wearing like a very Jacques Tati style costume. And, and uh, Jacques Tati was like a French filmmaker and comedian who made these amazing, um, uh, if you look at Mon Oncle or uh, my pronunciation for that was horrible. I apologize. <laughs> my Uncle or uh, or Playtime or my favorite uh Mr. Hulot's Holiday. Um, he would he made these incredible kind of like Chaplin esque uh, movies with these elaborate visual gags, um, but that with a poetic sense of of just beauty to them. And uh, and Daniel's very much kind of cha- channeling uh, Jacques Tati's physical humor in his presence in these movies. So this is our what we call the atrium set which is a set that Rick Heinrich built um, on a stage in Belgrade. And this is where a huge chunk of the movie takes place. And so um, there's, it's really three sets in one. It's this center space, which has our kind of Star Destroyer floor. It has the Mona Lisa, obviously, and then all these delicate plinths with uh, these little glass structures on them. Um and then there's the dining room set on the right that is weird, fake, <laughs> like Greek ruins with a Kanye mural for some reason. And then there's like the conversation pit, the weird sort of vibrant red conversation pit on the left. Um, and the notion of all three of them being so different um, so that visually we could have kind of a new vibe with each one of these scenes just because so much in the movie takes place in this one set. A lot of design went into, a lot of thought went into the artwork on the walls. Rick Heinrich, again, our production designer, he has an art background uh, and I don't. So I really relied on Rick. I kind of talked through the mixture of like very classic artists and also very cool artists and then some pastiches of sort of more modern styles but the the common point is that everything feels very expensive and we also these were all all of these this artwork on the walls and including the reproductions they, they were all done by very talented local belgrade artists and um i have to say it was pretty amazing because there's there's a hockney back there and there's um, there's, there's just some amazing pieces and the Mona Lisa, the fact that for, you know, four weeks we were shooting on this set and we just had a gorgeous, faithful reproduction of the Mona Lisa just sitting there. I would sometimes just go and stare at it. It was, it was, it was pretty magical. Chris Peck worked up the, the Mona Lisa sliding closed, open and closed thing. And it was actually a pretty complicated rig to get the, get the motor to slam that thing shut fast enough. So this moment of, of Miles kind of taking us in and kind of selling the Mona Lisa to us. Um, first of all, it, it sets up hopefully the ending, the very final shot with Andy. Uh, it also seeing and seeing Helen here kind of like take, uh, take it in the connection between her and it, I thought, was very important. The fact that the Mona Lisa has real weight for her and uh, <laughs> Daryl has real weight for her and um, 
and that we give it this moment of respect and that for me it's all about the ending not being about this is a thing that should get burned it's about this is the thing that nobody wants burned but this is what she has to do in order to um it's a tool she needs to deconstruct the master's house the drinks the glasses were we gave a lot of thought to the design of every single person's glass including pegs it tickled me <laughs> peg has the solo glass and later on you'll see her with a sharpie trying to put her name on it in an act of defiance this is another scene that was originally a lot longer and it's just it, with all of these and with any film but especially with a whodunit and especially with one like this where the way it's structured the crime isn't going to happen until nearly an hour into the film um Pacing ends up just being the thing, just figuring out how little you can explain something and, and, and keep it moving. Um, it's interesting, though. I, I went back because I got a little insecure about that, about the fact that it's so long before the murder happens. I went back and opened up, you know, just in iTunes, the murder, or the death on the Nile. And it's about the same length into it when the murder happens in death on the Nile. Um and I think Last of Sheila also, it's nearly an hour into the movie before the murder happens. Um, I think the natural, especially if you're keeping the audience engaged and giving them interesting stuff and, and interesting characters, there's a, the natural grace period that an audience gives you of, okay, we're going to see where this goes. I think if you earn their trust and you kind of telegraph that I promise something is coming, They'll stick with you for a while, especially in a movie like this. Um, but then you better give it to them or they'll kill you. <laughs> uh, the way Edward plays Miles's obliviousness here. Also, I love Leslie's outfit in this. I love his suit. I love that little accent piece on his lapel was something that he, that he brought and, uh, he just looks so sharp. He always looks sharp, but I love how it works with the character. So here's our dining room set. And this was an idea that I had very early on. It, 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 this was kind of before I even came up with what the movie was really going to be. Just in the abstract, the idea of <laughs> us thinking it's something and then Blanc doing a library scene where he solves the crime in the first act. Um, seemed incredibly fun to me. And especially once I kind of, the notion of Miles being this pompous guy and the idea of it being, uh, you know, the, I love Birdie's little look there. The idea of him being, that we're going to be ready to see this guy kind of <laughs> deflated by this. I just I found it pretty delicious. And I feel like Daniel just kind of like played it perfectly. The, the iPad gag was kind of a late ad in the script writing process. That was like a, a later gag that I came up with and I was made me very happy. <laughs> who want, who doesn't want to get an iPad? Seems like a nice thing. Uh, I mean, a lot of, a lot of Blanc kind of in these environments is also just kind of drawn, I guess, from, you know, I've, I've in whatever in the past, like, 
years of my life, I've, I've been in situations where I've been <laughs> in, in in kind of rich environments and felt very much like a fish out of water. And and the way that Daniel plays this and kind of the thing on the beach of do we get our luggage? And everyone else, everyone else seems to know what the rules are and how to act. And he just feels completely lost at sea in this bizarre world where the least cool thing you can do is ask, <laughs> do we carry our, <laughs> what do we do next? <laughs> um, how does this work? And I feel like Daniel has kind of tapped into that and, and played it. <laughs> Edward's reaction here. <laughs> thump and we worked on the sound effect of his butt hitting the chair to give it kind of the perfect little <laughs> it's like a little da dunk this is something that daniel and i worked out he had the idea of kind of this pathway through the glass and him doing this very deliberate thing that's our one good look at the kanye mural right there if you, if you missed it <laughs> A lot of these, this shot that we just saw, I want to talk about Jaron Prasant, who is um, a dear friend of, of mine since college and a good friend of Steve Yedlin's and I's. And, and Jaron is a really talented, accomplished cinematographer who's shot huge movies and shot, shot great films. And I've worked, I worked with on my show Poker Face with Natasha Leon that I just did. Jaron shot a bunch of the episodes for that. And we've been so lucky to have him as kind of our second unit DP on these movies. And what that means is any shot like that where there aren't actors in it, but it's like a beauty shot pushing in on the crossbow, um, that's Jaron. Or the shots of the Mona Lisa or the big establishing shot, drone shots um, uh, or insert shots. A lot of these things are... Uh, and it, insert shots make a movie. I mean, I think artfulness in terms of the details, especially in a movie like this, um, are so important. And to have a DP of Jaron's caliber uh, doing it, so it's a real privilege and luxury. We got this on the first take, this shot right there, and it was so perfect. When none of us had any idea if this rig was going to work. And the fact that not only did it pop up and start spraying, but the fact that it hit the wine glasses so you can see that it's blood and that and Edward didn't break. He just kept that face is uh it was it was magical. It was just like, oh my god, you get one of those a movie, maybe, if you're lucky. This was a rubber iPad so that he could throw it at throw it at Daniel Craig's face and not worry about about damaging the money I also uh, this part of the set with these weird chairs um, I loved there's a shot coming up later where I realized because we could see through the chairs that I could actually shoot from back behind the chair and still have Edward in frame and that got me really excited but Steve also did this interesting thing with the lighting that I really loved where he just put a bunch of light sources in the shot there's just little lamps set up like blazing into the camera in the shot and it gave it this very kind of creepy dramatic vibe to it that that I really loved these chairs the other thing was there's actually like glass in those paint in like the weird like metal panes and so when you'd sit on them 
you would hear the gra- glass kind of like creaking and you I was constantly afraid that shards of glass it was going to break and <laughs> shards of shards of glass of you know into Daniel's ass <laughs> thank god there's Daniel Craig right there look at those blues look at those baby blues i i always have to just allow myself only a couple of shots where I do what I just did with the camera where we just push right up to Daniel's face because it's so powerful when you do it. You don't want to overdo it. You really want to use it to underline something important. Um, in Knives Out, I did it a couple of times in the library and then with the donut monologue. But it's always tempting because you put those eyes on the screen and it's just, you, you, it's pretty captivating. His costume here with the the other reference besides Jacques Tati, he said, I want it to be Jacques Tati meets Cary Grant in To Catch a Thief. And his costume is insanely accurate to that. It's just like, I, I think he showed up on set and not knowing that he had given those references, I was like, right away in the costume fitting, I was like, it's got some Jacques Tati. It's also got some Cary Grant. Um, but those high-waisted trousers, um, but you kind of have to be Daniel Craig to pull that look off. <laughs> I think if I hiked my trousers up that high, I, very quickly I would I would look like a character from The Wind in the Willows. But Daniel gets away with it. So when I was thinking about this scene, I, I found one thing that's really useful is watching movies while I'm shooting. This shot right here where he leans into... If for no reason at all, it makes no sense lighting wise, but he leans into darkness while he, the one delivering the monologue is in complete darkness while there's a character in the frame who's not. Um, I've found that watching movies while I'm shooting, just putting on movies that I love at night, uh, can be really inspirational. I, I had, I found Citizen Kane and this is when Kane reads the declaration of principles, the fact that he's stating the most sincere thing in the entire movie and the way that Wells lights him is exactly, I just stole it for this. He's, it's an insane thing where for no reason at all, he's completely unlit while the characters around him are totally lit as he's saying this very sincere thing. And I just found it so powerful. And um, I just, you know, I texted Steve and sent him some screen grabs and said, let's, let's, let's steal this. I feel like in the middle of a shoot, it's very easy to get kind of distracted by the carpentry of a film set by just the process of making your shots, making your days. It's easy for me at least to lose track of what the power of the thing is going to be when it actually is put together as a movie and just putting on movies that inspire me at night when I get home, even if it's just watching 10 minutes of them is a great way of reconnecting and remembering the impact of what you're doing and also opening your mind back up to even when you're in the midst of all of it, you need to be open to discovery. You need to be, you know, still looking for things that are going to surprise you. There's Peg writing her name on the on the solo cup. There's a, uh, I love Catherine in this scene. There's a runner throughout this whole thing. Uh, I was listening to a lot of Merrily We Roll Along while I was writing this. It's a Stephen Sondheim show that's kind of about a group of friends who who rots and it felt relevant. And so for any musical theater nerds, there's a bunch of right here. If you listen, nothing about this is fair. Congratulations. Now, you know, which is a lyric from Merrily. Um, 
And there's a bunch of those kind of hidden throughout the whole thing. And later on, when Hugh Grant opens the door, you can see the Merrily poster back behind him on the wall. I love Catherine in this scene. I think this is one of my favorite scenes in the movie. She just destroys it here. And the actual venom that she's spitting. And then context when it feels like then when Dave comes up and, and completely, you know, cows Andy. And then the second half, when you realize that was another early thing I had of, could I have a scene at the beginning where it seems like one character wins the scene? We see it a second time. You realize this other character had a secret intention and has actually won the scene. Um, but Catherine here, I just, I just love watching her. She's such an incredible actor and she's obviously an incredible comedic actor, but she's just, just a great actor and she is so committed. What makes her great at comedy is also what makes her great at drama and at everything. It's absolute a hundred percent commitment to every single moment. And, um, she just amazed me in this scene. And this is the monologue from Dave Bautista. Um, Dave Bautista, who I want to sing the praises of. I, I think Dave, I was so excited to work with Dave in this part because I think he's an incredible actor. I think he has a vulnerability and a depth to him. I think he is, just has, I think still un, as yet untapped reservoirs of depth and talent. I'm so excited to see more filmmakers give him dramatic roles and use him because um, I think he's he's a fantastic actor. I felt really lucky to have him in this. And this was the monologue he gave where everyone was just kind of so blown away. The whole cast started applauding after, after he came up and did it. It was so sweet. So finally, I think at this point, hopefully the audience is kind of knows that shit is about to go down. That little moment there of Catherine, by the way, bumping into him as a little, that's one of the few actual little red herrings of let's put a moment where someone else in the cast could have stolen the gun. Um, but I think at this point, the audience knows time's up. And so that leads to a tremendous amount of tension in this scene. Um, and it's interesting with these, the, the little pops to the Mona Lisa closing that was something that we discovered in, in, in post. Um, I put this scene together and initially it wasn't planned with those Mona Lisa pops in there. And as we were showing the movie, the friends and family, and we started to get a sense of how much tension was building for people in this scene. Um, and my, a good friend of mine, Michael Lerman, um, who's, who's a filmmaker, he, he, I showed it to him and he mentioned this as a reference, like the tension in like the scene, in Boogie Nights, and that got me thinking about the firecrackers and how how he used those in that scene, and and that made me go back in and say, oh, do we have shots of the Mona Lisa? And popping them in with these very sharp sound design elements here, using those as as punctuation marks. So that was a discovery in in post, and was something just in the interest of kind of seeing what works about a scene and figuring out is there kind of an organic way that we can get even more juice out of it. Right there, you can see the gun. That's there. The gun is on frame for like six frames, on screen for like six frames when he puts it in. And earlier, you could totally see him stealing it from Dave. Um, so playing fair again. 
it all it goes throughout this whole thing. And obviously the biggest example of that is about to come up here at this moment here with the glass switch. And right there it happens. And we, we did so many takes of that because it's not just the choreography of Edward and Dave with the handoff. It's kind of the accidental choreography of the dress flashing in front of it as well. Um, just to distract your eye enough, but not enough to the point where you think, wait, what are they trying to distract me from? Bacardi. And then finally, murder mystery, and we have the actual murder. This takes quite a lot of work to play what Dave is playing here, <laughs> to do take after take and commit to it this fully in terms of like choking and the eyes swelling and everything. It's... It's a lot of work. This is also a scene where, and there's a bunch of them in the movie, but um, scenes where everybody is kind of milling around, talking to each other. And I tried to be, there are a bunch of close-ups in it, but I tried to be with the wide shots really careful with the blocking. So I'll call it out when it cuts to one of them, but the blocking and the wide shots and the placement of people in the frame um, was really important to me and, and, and trying to create depth in the frame, trying to create interesting shapes, but also had holding everybody in the frame at once when we popped back was, uh, was something I put a lot, of, a lot of work into. Not that this is about me. So there's the, you just saw the phone on the table there. And it's a bit like the what's missing from this picture game. When we cut back to Miles again, the phone is going to be gone. I love, I love how gentle he is with whiskey here. And I love this moment that Daniel, Daniel kind of pulled out. So there, the phone is gone. And it's now in his back pocket, and we're in a moment, I'll point out, when we come back to the scene, we again are going to play really fair with the phone being back in his pocket right when they're searching for it. And then here, leaning into a bit of the, and then there were none tension of, oh my God, we're trapped on an island together and there's been a murder. Um, so after the notion of, first of all, once things start going, they really start going here. And the idea that we're also now giving kind of the red meat of the good murder mystery stuff, um, even to the extent where it's kind of, you know, tropes of the genre. It's, I feel like those are actually really important leaning into those. And, and if you're going to a murder mystery, having these beats you recognize as murder mystery beats that I, I take, I love those. I mean, that's, that's kind of <laughs> That's why I read a good murder mystery is to have moments like these, you know. So here's the uh, payoff to the piece of shite. This was a weird little, we had to find a place to shoot this scene. And this is like the, I think this is like the pool heater utility area. It was a tiny little room. That's why it's such a wide lens. Um, in the actual, that was shot in Greece. So here we're in Belgrade, that little scene we just saw was in Greece that was at the Villa 20 in one of their like little utility rooms. I think we hung a, <laughs> hung a vanga on the wall just, <laughs> just to give it something. 
I love this blanket that Kate's wrapped in also. It feels very, I don't know why she feels like a Russian, <laughs> Russian Tsarina or something. This is a Jaren shot, uh, the glass. And that gling, gling, gling of it lighting up, that's like eight different flags set up around to to, to uh, reveal the letters as we push up on it. That's a Jaren Prasant special. And uh, it's an example of what a great cinematographer doing insert shots for you will, will get you. So obviously this is the live version of it that we show as, as he tells it. There's also, there's a handkerchief over Dave's face. That's <laughs> as a token thing of respect for the dead. It also meant that we could have Dave's stunt double lying there and Dave Bautista didn't have to lie on the ground while we were shooting all this. All right, so we've just said, I'm mean, gonna get his phone. The phone is missing. And now if you keep your eyes peeled, when Edward goes up here, you're going to see the phone very clearly in his back pocket. That's when Peg comes and he flees Peg. <laughs> and there it is right there. Right when they're talking about it. And then, of course, forget about the phone. What about the gun? So again, once things click in, wanting to really have them start rolling downhill very, very fast, um, almost as kind of like a reward for the audience's patience and escalation upon escalation and driving, driving, driving us towards sort of the mid-movie climax. This physical bit that Edward and Daniel worked out of that I thought was just hilarious. Uh, and then Edward here, his like pure panic and leading up to our lights out moment, which I'm going to start talking about now just so that I have enough time to talk about it because Steve Yedlin, again, my cinematographer, one of my best friends, we've we met freshman year in the dorms at uh, USC. We met on a student film set. Steve was still in high school, actually. And um, Steve worked out this whole method for doing the uh, the light gag of the of this, of the sweep through. So what that is, it's an incredibly powerful light inside the center of a big rotating drum with a notch cut in it. And this is, I'm talking, it's like five feet tall and like eight feet across. It's a massive thing. And the drum is on like a centralized motor that can spin it at whatever speed you want. So what would, right there, zoom like that. So what would happen, we turned it on on set. The thing was, once you turn the light on, you have to start the motor going and start it rotating. Because if you have the drum holding still with the light inside of it, the drum will catch on fire because the light is so powerful. So it became this game of getting the drum going and getting, like with this, it's two of those rigs working at once. One to get the thing flashing through the bricks, the other to get uh, get the one down the hallway. And so it became this incredibly elaborate game of... Um, of figuring out the cues for these things and how exactly to do them. So like here, it's one for down there, it's one for here, and then a third one there lighting this up. And the timing was kind of nightmarish on these. 
This shot here is a is a good example of Bob Doucet, our editor. Um, so when Bob, it, when we're shooting, Bob was out in Greece and out in Belgrade, and he's assembling the movie while we're working. And this was a very good example of we got this sequence put together, and he said, "I kind of want to feel the presence of the disruptors, like have them sneaking around the dark and keep them alive as threats for what's about to come." And so he, uh, and so he said, "Can you just get them skulking around?" And so I, I got Catherine, and we set up this shot. I think I actually shot that with Jaron, and and then uh, there's a shot of a birdie that we got, and there's one later on that's used in the second half of the movie of Lionel kind of stepping forward. It's a really good example of Bob seeing a story thing and calling us out and catching it, so that we can, uh, so that we can, we can, we can shoot it while we still have the sets. Spent a lot of time figuring out how to do, because that is actually Edward's silhouette back there, how to like make it just vague enough to where it's a shape. And then one of my favorite special effects in the whole movie is coming up. So originally in the big shot that we do of Blanc that goes around and all the disruptors, or disruptors kind of come out and reveal themselves running out of the complex, originally... Um, Edward was not in that shot. Like all the other disruptors came out and then Blanc looks up at the glass onion and Edward comes out the balcony of the glass onion. Like he was up there and it was just too much. And it made him too suspicious. So Edward right there coming out, that is, we shot him against a green screen coming out of the glass onion, uh, balcony. And we just used that element and put him in that shot with birdie and peg coming out there. So, um, so that it feels like he's kind of in this group. No one screams like Kate Hudson. It's a great, <laughs> great comic screamer. <laughs> She's not going anywhere. Uh, and that little tear from Blanc, that's again a thing where it's a little bit of a hold your breath and do it thing because... You know, it feels like it's going to pull the audience out when they first see it, and then when you realize the the bit with the with the hot sauce in the second half, it makes sense. And here you can look closely. He takes his jacket off because there's hot sauce. You see that stain on his pocket? There's hot sauce leaking through there. If you would look really closely, there's a dot of Jeremy Renner's hot sauce going through his jacket. And here we come to the big reset of the movie. So this is where the uh, this is where the fugue structure actually clicks in. So we're here. We have the uh, the repeat, the repeat of the fugue. We have uh, had a white hand on a black door, and then we have a black hand on a white door. And we're through the looking glass, and here is Mr. Hugh Grant. Uh, I think it's really fun getting little glimpses into Blanc's life. And uh, I think it's very important that, to remember that Blanc is not the protagonist of these stories. Like Anna's character, Marta, was the protagonist of the first one. And uh, obviously Helen is the protagonist of this one. And Blanc is the detective, and he's there to solve the case. So spending too much time delving into his backstory or his life or all of that is, is 
not that interesting to me. I want him to serve his function as the detective. And what's interesting is seeing how he engages with the mystery, but it's pretty fun. And it'll get a little glimpse of, uh, of Blanc's life with his, with his partner, Philip. And, and when I thought about who it would bring me the most joy to see <laughs> Blanc have as his, as his partner, uh, Hugh Grant, you can't beat it. And this is obviously also, so coming back to Janelle Monet here, um, this is a scene obviously where we kind of put it all on the table and you realize what the movie is actually doing. More than that though, um, when I first came up with the idea of uh, this fugue structure of, of doing the movie, doing a reset at the midpoint, and then showing that same chunk of story from a different perspective, that seemed very challenging to me because the big question was how do you keep the audience interested and engaged in the second half? How do you do it so the audience's shoulders don't just sag and everyone feels like, oh, we got to watch all of this again? And the answer to that, or what I put my chips down on, was introducing the character that the audience cares about was it's not going to be enough for it just to be an intellectual oh we're seeing this scene but through this person's eyes it needed a rocket ship strapped to its back if it was going to work in the second half and where i landed was on heart was on empathy was on basically suddenly you in this into this wasteland of terrible characters you have somebody to actually root for and on top of that, you've just seen them get shot at the end of that sequence. And so uh, hence the introduction of Helen and hence Janelle Monet again getting some incredible praise from me here because she has this one scene to earn the audience's empathy and love. You have to be rooting for her launching out of this scene or the entire rest of the movie won't work. And to come in halfway through a movie with an entirely new character, um, to ask this much of the audience, and to uh, and to s pull it off in the way that she does, it's absolutely amazing. Um, we shot this scene over like three days. It's a very long scene, also. I think the fact that in the middle of a movie, after the kind of rush of activity we have at the end of that last act, we can stop and just have like an eight minute scene between these two characters across a table. It's a testament to these actors. It also shows you that pace is not all about speed and pace is not about franticness. Pace is about engagement. And I think it's the fact that we're not just giving information here, but we're, first of all, obviously setting the stage for how we're about to attack it, but we're also giving the audience time and space here to recalibrate everything they just saw for this new information. And so knowing that all those gears are turning in the audience's head when they're watching this, we can afford to sit still at this table and uh, sit still at this table and kind of talk through it and be very, very clear with all of this. The other element of this, there is a lot of information and, and we want it to be totally clear to the audience what's happening, launching forward. Clarity with the storytelling is, is such a big part of these movies and clarity with with the least amount of work from the audience required as possible i guess um 
these are very dense movies. And so I'm always trying to figure out if we can lubricate the gears of exposition any better, if we can make it easier for the audience to, if we can shorthand things, if we can, you know, anything that can help in terms of, uh, in terms of communicating information to the audience so that they don't have to, uh, do math. This bit that Daniel is about to do here, the, oh Lord, where you see the whole thing playing out in Blanc's head and <laughs> he gets very excited about it. Um, I love that also because a couple of times in every writing process, I have a moment like this. Like when I thought about the idea of doing this big reset in the middle, this was basically me. Like, oh, oh no. Oh, yes. <laughs> also Blanc's outfit here. I love that he got out of the tub and put on a tie to receive this work call. <laughs> the first at Andy's styling, Helen's styling here. Um, I mean, I, I walked into Janelle's trailer after, because we had this point, we, this was in Belgrade, so we had shot for like a month and a half with her in the Andy look. And when I walked into her trailer and saw her done up like this as Helen, I did, I literally did like a double take. It, it was very, very surreal seeing her, uh, seeing her styled into this part. And then once she adds in the accent and adds in the, uh, all the mannerisms, it was just such an amazing transformation. I mean, the other incredible thing was that because this was like halfway through the shoot when we shot this scene, you know, she had to be seating this character. She had to be playing this character, but in the Andy outfit earlier than this throughout all of the Greek shoot. And so even though this was the first time she actually got to play Helen dressed as Helen, you know, she had to know this character even before we got to this scene so that she could play Helen playing Andy on the, you see, it's complicated. <laughs> it's math. And Janelle, the amount of work that she did with all these different layers of all these different things to make it clear for the audience and, and still have you care about this character, um, it's it's a just an extraordinary piece of work, and uh, I didn't even really appreciate the depth of what she had she had done with this part until I got the whole thing put together in the edit, and realized the little subtle layers that she had built into it. I guess the other thing is it's it's really four parts that she's playing. She's playing Helen just in this scene, really. She's playing Helen playing Andy, and she's playing Andy in the flashbacks. And then she's playing Helen playing Andy before the audience knows that that's Helen playing Andy. And she's so good, she does subtle distinctions in her performance based on whether the audience has that information yet. She's playing Andy more straightforward and laying the facade drop a lot less um, before the game is revealed as opposed to after. Um, and we're not shooting any of this in order. We're hopping around and shooting multiple things out of order every single day. And uh, the fact that she was able to track all of this and 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 pull it off, um, yeah, I'm just gonna I'm gonna keep praising Janelle Monet. If you didn't show up for some Janelle Monet praise, you're you're in the wrong commentary track. I don't know what to tell you. 
So originally this scene had a bit where Birdie and Peg showed up and they almost caught the two of them. Uh, and it was fun. It's a fun bit. I don't know. Maybe we'll put it out as a deleted scene at some point. But pacing wise, one thing I knew that Bob and I knew instinctively is that the instant we pull this reversal off, all the audience wants is to get back on the island. We just needed to kind of strip everything back that wasn't purely necessary and get us back to the island as quickly as possible. But we still have all this groundwork to lay. We have to, um, we have to do this bit about uh, we have to do this bit about the flashback. We have to kind of learn the real deal of Andy and Andy and Miles. This thing was really important. Why didn't Miles just do it? And this whole thing, <laughs> saying he didn't do it because he's an idiot. Um, first of all, because that sets up obviously the ending of Blanc's realization of how he's been snowed. But also because I realize at this point, the audience is going to very much be thinking that. And so to openly address it, I thought could help let some of uh, the air out of that expectation. This was a basement uh, bar in Belgrade where we spent a day shooting all these flashback scenes. It's very fun putting hair on Dave. And (laughs) it's amazing. Leslie is suddenly 20 years younger without his beard. And as Catherine liked to point out, I'm the only one who looks older in the flashbacks and her hair stuff. And then Edward, of course, showed up with his magnolia look. He didn't tell me he was going to do this. He just showed up on set. And I think I reacted kind of like Claire in that shot. I was just like, and then I started, I cracked up and I was like, oh, I, I, I get it. His idea, I love it, is it, the idea behind it is Miles has never had an original thought in his life. <laughs> I think it's pretty good. I haven't, uh, and I, I, I think uh, I was just like, oh, you're going to get me in trouble with Paul. <laughs> I think he liked it. And again, just trying to keep the momentum up here. Put a good, put a good track underneath it. Try and put a good Bowie track. And also, I like that it's Starman. That it's kind of describing Miles, and just trying to step on the gas, make it as dynamic as possible. Use our camera. I love that he misses this shot also, and that the word "poo" is behind him instead of "pool" because he's blocking the L. I just, I don't know, just trying to see in all these little things. Uh, so this is this we shot on the island of Spetsis, and uh, this is a beautiful courtyard in front of a hotel. And um, that we shot this at a time of day, so there's a little bit of glow in the skies. It was really magical. Uh, and the movie, The Lost Daughter, the Maggie Gyllenhaal movie, which I loved. It's a really beautiful movie. It also shot on Spetsis. It was interesting. I think they were there right before us. And when I watched that movie, it was very odd seeing all the <laughs> locations and thinking, oh, that's that corner. And then this was a set that we built uh, in in Belgrade. And keeping with the Miles has no original ideas, he's obviously dressed as, as Steve Jobs here. Another very subtle, fun thing. Look at the part that's on the right side of Andy's. This is real Andy. And she has the part on the screen right side on her left. And now... <laughs> uh, she, if you see Helen as Andy, I figured Helen did her hair, showed, showed the hair reference, but they did in a mirror and she got it almost right, but her part is on the opposite side. It's on her right on the screen left side. That's Rick Heinrich right there. That's Rick Heinrich as her lawyer and that's 
Tom Karnowski, who's our line producer, as the judge. Uh, and it's just, again, because of the COVID restrictions, anybody who was a trusted, regularly tested member uh, of, of the crew got roped into a cameo at some point. There's Tom right there. And Rick. <laughs> I, I like this. Uh, it's obviously a little a little nod there. That photo. And in the editing again, we just kept speeding the sequence up. We just kept cutting out anything that was even slightly extraneous. We're just trying to communicate, communicate, communicate as quickly and clearly as possible and get to what we really want to get to, which is the island. At the same time, all this stuff is really important. And so, um, so being clear with it and being fast. Um, this was a little reshoot we did to add this in just to completely connect the dots of, aha, that's what's in the envelope, and she sent it to them. The clue notepad was, uh, <laughs> something that I liked in, first of all, it, it's, it, it comes off as a joke. It comes off that it's just, oh, ha ha, Blanc doesn't like clue. It's actually seeding something very important. It's laying track for the notion of Blanc's Achilles heel, as he says, uh, is, are, are dumb things. Uh, so first of all, I like the idea that anyone who... <laughs> actually takes themselves seriously as a crime solver would be very annoyed that the public's first <laughs> reference is always this board game. <laughs> uh, but, but also it's, it's, it's actually also the kind of the essence of the entire mystery is the notion that, um, this big, dumb, obvious thing is happening and, uh, Blanc, Blanc doesn't see it because he is looking for a game of 3D chess. Um, when in reality, it's just, it's just, it's so much dumber than that. And so now we are back and we're back in, now we start playing the Back to the Future 2 game. Now we start having some fun with, oh, we've seen this, but we we didn't quite know what we were looking at. So this thing you thought she was grasping in anger, you now realize, no, nope, she's seasick. <laughs> There's so many shots of Janelle in this that just every time I point a camera at her, I was like, oh my God. And then obviously this little bit here of using the, uh, using the little flagpole for the audience of the shoe tying thing. You got a flat tire there to connect up and orient them very clearly as to where we were at. And I think in approaching this second half in thinking about this kind of reattacking it, there were a couple of things I wanted to be really disciplined about. First of all, was keeping the audience very oriented. Any clear indicators I could give them in terms of where and when these things line up with the original timeline that we saw that was going to be very important. The other thing is uh, establishing a very clear mission and keeping things on mission, that it's now a buddy movie with Blanc and Helen, and Helen is very nervous 
<laughs> her little pause when when whiskey says andy and she goes yes it, it those little touches that janelle put in i mean it, it, it again it just gets us gets us on her side that little moment of sipping the hard kombucha <laughs> Setting it up. There's just all these little things that Janelle kind of built into it. Madeline Klein uh, is a terrific actor and she is so funny. And she always found something to do in every single scene. She would bring so much to it. Um, I pointed out a lot of the little moments of her kind of being annoyed with <laughs> with, uh, with, uh, with Birdie. But then here, it, it's, it felt very, very important to get... Um, to get a glimpse of, of what whiskey is all about. Use a lot of zooms in this movie. And I, I, I love good zoom lenses, but this, this in particular, it felt like because of the references of last of Sheila and because of kind of the seventies vibe of it, allowing ourselves to kind of ride the zoom, uh, more and more felt like a, uh, felt like we had permission to do it. And the music kicks in and a bat and again back on point, back on motion, back on mission, not motion, and in motion. She's in motion also. The spit take. I think she was very careful not to get anything on her dress, so she really projected that spit take way out there. This scene, I was I'll tell you what made me most happy about this scene is that I am off to the side directing from the pool. I got in the pool to direct. And the whole time I was just, I'm happy the scene is good because I feel like I was so distracted by my giddiness at just feeling like I'm directing from a swimming pool. I've made it. <laughs> it was also incredibly windy on this day. Uh, you can't really tell, but I guess you can see the trees kind of like blowing back there, but the wind was like really kicking up. And it wasn't a huge problem. Here's another good like signpost thing. Like we remember that moment with Blanc and suddenly we remember where we're at. It was a big problem in this scene though, because Birdie is basically wearing a sail on her head with that hat, which, uh, which plays with, you know, revealing Andy and the whole thing is very necessary, but we had like 30 pins going into her hair through her hat to keep it down. And she would build up a head of steam with this beautiful monologue. And then the hat would take off in the wind and uh, it became a battle of Kate versus Hat. The Matisse in the bathroom. And the absinthe drinker back behind her. So again, on mission, trying to constantly drive it forward. And, and in terms of just clarity, using that clue notepad, even though we've kind of done it as a joke, using it to just kind of clock the progress. And... Um, because this is a bit of the thing that I try and avoid in these movies. This is a bit of clue gathering. And so trying to give it a sense of urgency and give it a sense of very clear stakes and a sense of danger also. Um, this moment that's going to come up where, where Blanc realizes she's drunk and he says, please remember the danger here is actually really important, reminding everybody that this is a character we care about. She's in a little bit over her head and she's in a very dangerous situation and also kind of remind the audience she's going to get shot at the end of this, and we still have that to deal with. I love it. So, it's so adorable the way that Janelle plays it here. 
We're just health stuff. Janelle uh, comes from the South, and and she worked really specifically on the Helen accent. It's also very fun playing the game of watching the first half and seeing, especially as she gets kind of drunk, when she's kind of taken down the disruptors one by one and that scene by the pool, how her accent slips in, the Helen accent slips in a little bit. It also, it's fun once you start lining things up in different ways, always looking for kind of that kaleidoscope thing. So here, what Miles is saying about your partners telling you to stop applied to Andy and Miles, but it also here applies to Blanc and Helen <laughs> and the him basically giving what we now understand in this context is a pep speech, pep talk, unintentional pep talk to Helen to jump in there and, and screw stuff up and, and get things going, even though her partner's telling her to stop. <laughs> That's also, I think the most beautiful shot of Janelle in the movie. I love that shot so much with the background behind her. There's just something about the light in that shot that, Janelle Monet, ladies and gentlemen. And then it was a joy when we got to this scene to have Catherine and Janelle be able to play off of each other. And this moment that it was very important here and that holding for Dave to come in, the notion of if Dave hadn't, hadn't entered, what would Claire have, have told her right there? Would she have called her out? And, and the notion of keeping it alive that any one of these people could be the killer who knows what she's actually up to when it felt very important. Catherine and the way that she plays this, and this is a high degree of difficulty because there's a lot of exposition she's getting out here. She's just blowing out a lot of information, but making it feel like she's not just explaining it to us. So, this is actually a set. <laughs> we had we had to shoot some plates like in Connecticut or something, but then the actors are on a set. We built like just the little part of the house for them to be in front of in Belgrade because we couldn't get all the actors out to out to like New York and there are no houses that look like that in Serbia. And I love the way Janelle plays it here, the very slight drunken. <laughs> okay. Can you just say that one more time for me? That's very much me. And Claire feeling dangerous. I mean, I, I think that's the other element. I mean, it's when, when each of these actors need to, they dial in a level of menace to it and remind you of the stakes. And especially in the second half of the movie, that was very important. There was originally a runner throughout this whole section where originally Helen had kids and we shot things where throughout this whole thing, like right after here, when she emerges here, originally her phone rang and it was her daughter like FaceTiming with her flipping out because her daughter's poop had turned blue because she ate too many blueberry pop tarts. And there was kind of a runner of she would be investigating and then having to juggle these calls from her kids. And um, we had that in there because, you know, trying to just add another element of like the audience liking Helen, when we realized they were on the Helen side and we didn't need it, we took it out for pacing purposes. And I think it worked better without it. 
Serena was so sweet. We went out to Florida to shoot and she just, I, I hand her this copy of Gravity's Rainbow and just kind of talked her through all this. And she was so cool and, and thought it was very funny. <laughs> I love Janelle's reaction. When we shot Janelle and Daniel, we didn't actually know if we would get Serena for this bit. We knew we wanted her, but we weren't 100% sure. So they didn't actually know until they saw the movie who was going to end up being on that screen. <laughs> But Janelle, I just told her, react as if it's Serena. And hopefully anyone we get, it'll work. <laughs> the dynamic between Blanc and Helen, kind of the groove that Daniel and Janelle found in this back half is another part of the reason I think it... I think it works and doesn't feel like just a retread. I think it, it, it really is driven by the chemistry between the two of them. And uh, and that's, that's all them, man. Rick Heinrich, uh, again, with the set design, it's a subtle thing, but that weird like mural on the background with that leering kind of like goddess creature, it all adds up. And this was fun working out sort of the, almost like the sex farce type <laughs> choreography of poking out from behind bushes. It's, it's a sort of thing. Again, it's, it's very on the nose and it feels like a little bit like a trope. And I love that. I love when, especially in the midst of something where you're doing something a little more complicated and, um, messing with expectations a little bit more, I think it becomes additionally important to hit those very clear notes of bedrock things of, oh, I recognize this, it's doing this. It, 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 in that context, it, it's very pleasurable hitting those things. And again, really trying to recontextualize in an entertaining and meaningful way what we thought was a jealous rage and we realize here is actually anger that he's not going to get a slot on the news. Uh, also, that shot before of Janelle crawling through the weeds was another Bob Doucet special where we got the thing shot and he suggested, I think we want to be with Helen in that moment and show her creeping up and approaching before she emerges up through the, uh, up through the grass. So originally I, I had blocked this scene to take place on those chairs back behind Peg and Kate walked in and took one look at that bed and was like, why aren't we shooting on this bed? <laughs> like you have a good point. <laughs> so, and I think both of these actors are so good in this scene and Jess, I mean, the way that she plays the, uh, <laughs> the sweatpants bit, <laughs> And just how small she's able to go with it and still totally sell it made me very, very happy. This is some finesse work right here from Jess Hennick. And then, of course, Kate's reactions to it. And I do remember in writing being very, very excited about 
about that joke coming up with that early and and giggling maniacally to myself. And again, a moment then of clear focus of you see why she's still around. You see why Birdie's here. She's not just a silly person. She is actually, actually dangerous and she'll, she'll do what she has to do. And those, those moments, especially with characters this big are really, really important. And then the handoff here to the next mission and um, having this be like action movie intense in terms of the urgency of it, um, not letting the slack up at all in this back half felt, felt important. There's those baby blues. It's another, another close up I allowed myself of Daniel. And then another little overlap moment here and the way that Daniel and Janelle play this no drinking cracked me up that also if you look at a lot of these glass sculptures there's a lot of Beatles references that that one that she set the glass down just there if you go back that's the walrus from magical mystery tour with his eyes out from I am the walrus there's um there's a group of strawberries that are strawberry field the fields the uh the the button that they press to reopen the Mona Lisa is the fool on the hill um there's there's a bunch of them kind of hidden throughout We get our film noir moment with uh, with whiskey, but with a vape. <laughs> and then this was a drone shot. Again, this is a Jaron Prasant special. The little tiny, the fact that Claire <laughs> came prepared with the joints and also the vibrator. And uh, signifiers, just orienting just little bits with those slow motion bits to give very, very clear moments that the audience is going to remember and that's going to um, line up in their head. And, and uh, that bit where a phone is flashing. Oh, wait a minute. Sorry. I got to First of all, there's the, the, the symbol from my first movie, Brick, of the A. The tunnel symbol is on the surfboard back there. <laughs> we always try and work it in and every one of the movies and then this set that Rick Heinrich whipped up for Daryl. <laughs> oh yeah. This guy's still here. So originally the thing with the kid calling paid off because it was supposed to be like when her phone's going off, she thinks the kid is calling because it's poop time. <laughs> and uh, we were, again, when we realized we didn't need that and we could just play it, play through it, it, it pacing wise became a lot better, even if it was a funny gag. The fact that Madeline is holding her hair extension for the back half of this. I don't know how much it comes through watching it, but it, it, it made me very, very happy. And the cross purposes of this scene is kind of like a little delicate thing that I, I, I think comes, I think comes through the notion that remembering here that Helen does not know that Duke has died. And, uh, and we did a lot of takes of this, just trying to dial in exactly this little moment here of 
obliviousness and then her misinterpreting it and thinking she's saying, I'm glad he's dead. And the fish saves her from the spear gun. And I went back and forth constantly with leaving in and cutting out this little bit of her at the top of the stairs. But I love in the moment of this kind of action moment, the humanizing thing of, (laughs) I think any of us in the middle of that would be so winded from those steps. So coming up here, here's obviously a moment we recognize but then this, this close-up up here of Lionel is another one that Bob suggested that we get. Again, to just kind of connect back up, oh yes, there are multiple threats of all these people throughout here. And then we have, even though he said Helen in the first one, we didn't really clock it, hopefully, the repeat here, trying to play fair. And all this choreography of like when he... They look there and she moves over here, which in the other section is where she moves behind him. And it looks like the killer is about to shoot Blanc. All of this was kind of written into the script and um, worked out really carefully. And the actors had to do all this very delicate stuff and be in the exact right position while playing this very intense moment. And then I I always kind of wonder whether audiences are going to assume I'm going to figure out a way out of Helen dying. I kind of assume once we build up this much empathy that deep down inside on the audiences, we're going to figure we wouldn't be so mean as to actually kill off Helen. But still, I feel like we kind of get away with it. And we also kind of get away with the cliche of the, I hope, of the cliche of the, of the, diary stopping the bullet just because we are so happy that she (laughs) wasn't killed. (laughs) I guess I was kind of counting on that carrying us through, oh, the book stopped the bullet. Um, But look, it works. I thought I just kept trying to think of more clever ways of stopping the bullet. And finally, I'm like, eh, why why were we in that the wheel? And this is my hand. (laughs) This is my hand cameo. We did a little reshoot because I wanted a very specific reveal of running hot. So... Apologies, Daniel. That's that's me. It's so much fun watching this scene with an audience. Um, and the reaction, the recognizing of, oh, this is why he was crying with this bit. And then the way he goes, the way Daniel goes right into the shit balls, he really plays the hell out of it. <laughs> So this bit with the hot sauce rolling down her face, um, I mean, first of all, it's that, that hot sauce drip is, is CG, the way it rolls down. So on set, I was just talking her through, okay, now it's going to your nose and now you cringe a little bit. So uh, more Janelle Monet praise on her performance here. Also, though, I almost cut the scene out. I almost cut this little bit out um, just because I thought, ah, it's just sort of a fun little thing, but pacing-wise, we probably want to keep moving. And thank God I I left it in for our first real preview screening. And um, the theater, (laughs) hearing everybody kind of react to that thing sliding down her face, I thought, oh, thank heaven I didn't cut that out. (laughs) 
I love that sculpture of the hand with the fingers walking across. That's uh, that was one of my favorite little touches uh, that that Rick and his crew came up with, and with all this artwork here. And then, of course, we catch up to where we initially cut away in the first place, and who? <laughs> and now we're into the actual denouement. And we're about to get a good look at that art sculpture right here. There it is. That's actually what this thing looks like when you gaze into it. It's absolutely crazy. And now we're into the final sequence. And part of the idea of having all these glass things in the middle here was to do shots like this. That was, that was partially to set up the thing of breaking it at the end, but I also just thought it will be a great opportunity to kind of shoot through these things, especially once we're building up a hit of steam at the end here. So this notion of, uh, of the tiny little bit of red in the square was actually something when we were designing this case, this like frame and how this was going to lay out that Rick and I came up with. And, uh, that it was one of those things just in prep where I think initially it was going to be, we didn't exactly know, like we, we thought maybe the whole thing would be red back there or something. Or, and then we, I looked at that little square and was like, what if it's just that? And then Steve really took the cue of the neon light up above to do that beautiful lighting on her face of the blue and the green. The malapropisms that are throughout the entire movie of, of Miles, um, it, 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 it brought me great joy just because I, I knew that certain members of the audience would be very annoyed by them. And then to have that annoyance recognized and paid off in this way, it's just, it's one for the, uh, it's one for the word nerds in the audience. Also, so starting it, because this is kind of Blanc's denouement, and this is the equivalent of the library scene in Knives Out. This is where he kind of lays out the whole case. Um, and for these scenes, you know, this is about 20 minutes, give or take, of, of Blanc explaining the whole crime. And Daniel will show up for that week's work knowing the entire thing. Like he could step onto a Broadway stage and deliver the last 20 minutes of the movie straight. He's got it down pat. He's got it all figured out. And so what I try and do is uh, I've learned on the first one. And so with this one, I worked with him and we basically figured out, um, I try and fit, not get too fancy with the camera. I try and figure out how long I can carry one segment of it. So this shot, for example, you know, this started way back when he started explaining, you know, the killer almost got my Achilles heel. This is the exact same setup we've just pulled back with him. And so it carried like a page and a half of dialogue. And what I'm trying to do is give him runway. I want him to be able to perform these things without having it all chopped up. And so, um, and I'll work with him and say, okay, we'll take it up to here. And then he'll know, okay, I can prepare up to here and we'll work together. It's a collaborative process of figuring out how to shoot these sequences so that, um, so that I'm not chopping around all the time. And so that he can actually build up a head of steam with the performance of it. The other nice thing about it is with these cutaways, um, I can just, you know, he just keeps performing through them. And instead of 
recording, you know, voiceover in an ADR booth, the sounds slightly different, I can just use his actual performance from that same shot over these little flashbacks and these little cutaways and it makes it feel much more organic and flowing. Uh, Duke and we, I tried to frame him out as much as possible because Dave's poor stunt man is, is technically Dave, technically Duke's body is still back there. So anytime we looked over that direction, Dave's stunt man had to lie with a handkerchief over his head, over his face. Um, there's actually a shot in the trailer, one of Blanc's lines, where we had to uh, go and paint that out because Duke's body was was back there. Spoiler alert. And then here, just the, like little things here, like the, he, if you listen back to the original scene, he does say at Andy's, and it's just the mix that we tweaked a little bit, but we we played fair. It is actually there. Madeline became obsessed with the way that uh, Catherine said pancaked. <laughs> she would <laughs> just text me pancake emojis anytime she was giggling about it. And... <laughs> I can't even explain what's funny about it. Mad Madeline's little I am that that always makes me laugh. <laughs> so once again proving that nobody screams comically like Kate Hudson. Here we go. And uh although Catherine's uh <laughs> I think Catherine matches her with the holy shit. And then what is reality? I mean, that was scripted. And I think all of us were kind of waiting for the day when we were going to shoot that line and hear Kate say that. And I didn't want to blow her voice out. So I think I gave her like three takes at it. And, uh, and she, was, she was prepared. I mean, the other thing with shooting these scenes, you know, it's Blanc um, kind of laying the whole thing out. It was very important, though, to have the reaction shots to cut around to. I also like that... <laughs> He's wearing, Miles is wearing one tracksuit and he changes tracksuits to go do the murder, <laughs> changes into his murder tracksuit. Uh, so anyway, the day, the way the day would go is, um, you know, we would shoot uh, Blanc's through lines and then at the end of the day, we would have to grind through everybody's coverage of listening. Um, also very happy of that Janice Films mug that was just Chris Peck, our, our props guy, he had he had that mug that was just his personal mug and I stole it. I'm like, Oh, can we use that in the scene? Um, but anyway, so we would shoot through the scene and then we would just go around and get everybody's close-ups, and we would, you know, sometimes do multiple cameras like stuff like this. And we would have Daniel play the scene off screen and everybody would go through their reactions to it. Um, and it was actually, I mean, it was fun. It was a bit of a grind, but it was, it was actually quite fun. The way that Nathan's music subtly supports scenes like these um, is another. I mean, the big themes are one thing, but you know, Nathan is the always one of the first people that I pitch any story to. He's always one of the first people to read the script. He's out there on location when we're shooting, which is a very unusual thing for a composer. And um, Nathan's real skill is storytelling, and he's he's not just adding music to a cut he's tapped into what the story needs and and the shape of the whole thing and um the way in that way it's it reminds me very much of of 
what's amazing about John Williams work. I mean, it's the, the themes are one thing, but the actual skill is in the way that he amplifies what's happening in every single scene and, and focuses your attention on what you need to be paying attention to in the story and supports the storytelling through the music. Um, that's what Nathan is really good at. Sue Field, our, uh, our script supervisor, whose job it was to kind of have the script on set and, and reference different continuity things. She suggested I get that close up of Dave saying, Duke, don't mess with pineapple. Originally, I just had him in the wide shot doing it. And she said, you might want to flash back to it in this moment. So thank you, Sue. I love you. <laughs> the way Kate plays this. Oh, wait. Kate had the, the best description for playing Birdie. Uh, she she told me, I think Birdie understands every third word. <laughs> and in the editing of these, like tracking those reactions and 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 the little looks between the two of them, the shaping of this becomes a kind of a thing unto itself. And this was a very abstract concept in the script. I was kind of, when I talked it through with Daniel, he's like, oh no, I think I understand how to do this. And um, this notion of him, I was always very concerned because the notion of him realizing this moment is such a weird, delicate, abstract thing. And every single time I've seen it with an audience, Daniel has just completely led them there. And this always gets a big laugh, which I'm, I'm very relieved by. Um, Cast Daniel Craig in your movies, kids. That's the <laughs> that's that's the takeaway. That's my that's my directing advice. Get the best actor in the world to play your leading man. <laughs> Take that to the bank. That painting back there, <laughs> Edward, kind of in his Fight Club-ish sort of <laughs> sort of look. Uh, and it was funny, also, that all of these classic paintings on the walls, um, you know, especially the recognizable ones that we had reproductions done of them. Uh, the deal is if you do that, you have to license the image. And then at the end of the shoot, it's kind of life imitating art at the end of the shoot, you actually have to destroy those fake paintings. You have to burn them. And so <laughs> Edwards, Edward sticky fingers, Norden was walking around the set like he was shopping, like, oh, I'll, I'll love to get that Hockney after the, and we had to break it to him. Nope, it's, we're going to burn them all. Burn it all down. So having kind of praised Janelle through this whole thing, we're coming up to my favorite bit of her performance and this is again it's 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 a i guess what i'd call for myself like a a, a satisfying solid chord progression <laughs> it's a it's a uh, satisfying trope the whole thing of the killer being called out by the detective and then but you have no proof and um and janelle had to, after all of the comedy and all of the craziness and all of all of this, she had to actually like gra emotionally ground this moment of <laughs> this moment of defeat 
And the fact that she was able to, in the midst of all this madness and with the tone of this movie where it was at, the fact that she was able to actually tap into something very real. Um, I just, I, I, I can't give her enough credit for it. And Blanc also having built up, I mean, we, this is where kind of like the, the chemistry between them pays off actually is buying sort of the sincerity of this moment and the sadness of this moment for Blanc. And it's also, it, it's, you know, it's a bit of a risky thing to have Daniel playing, you know, this, this incredibly capable detective and, and having him hit the end of his powers here and having him actually acknowledge I'm part of the system and um, I can't take this any further. Uh, you can, hint, hint, wink, wink, but I can't and having him step away. It's very, very important though because similar to in the first movie, um, Marta actually, her moment where she pukes on, <laughs> on Ransom and then, uh, and then takes the fake knife in the chest, having the protagonist of these movies have an active moment where they bring about the villain's downfall. It's, I mean, it's storytelling 101. It's just the absolute basics, but it was incredibly important. And that means it's got to be on her shoulders. And that means that Blanc has to step aside for that. The notion of these movies being the first one and definitely this one, um, and hearing people talk about like the, the the rich element, the element of kind of taking down rich people. To me, it's it's I don't know. It's it's not very interesting the notion that rich people are jerks. To me, the interesting thing about this is kind of what you see playing out here: the notion of the power structure and um, the note, not globally in terms of you know the, the rich up top, although that's definitely there. But I'm talking about within groups of people. In the first movie, it was a family. In this movie, A Group of Friends, the notion that there's this unhealthy power structure that's in place and what people who may even have good intentions will do in order to protect that structure um, if they're benefiting from it uh, and what it takes to, to break that structure. Um, that, 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 to me, is, is actually so much more interesting than the notion of just something as simple as, as eat the rich. That little moment between that I just yacked over with uh, Janelle and Daniel is so beautiful. And Daniel, the delicacy that he played that with. Um, again, Daniel Craig. And then when Janelle starts, I always feel like the Popeye theme, it's it's almost like alcohol is, her, is like spinach with Popeye for her. Um, when Janelle started doing this thing of going to each of the things and breaking them, I, you can, I could really see her, her dance performance background coming through. Cause she's, she's almost like Bugs Bunny. It's very choreographed in terms of zinc, zinc, <laughs> it's very much in the Looney Tunes in this moment here. And, and then when she walks around to each of them, you can feel her deliberateness with the stuff. It, it, it's very much, she's putting on a show in order to, 
to get his blood boiling. Coming back to the notion of telling the audience what you're going to do and then doing it, I mean, I, I additionally just really in, enjoyed the notion of this this whole back this whole last sequence of the movie being an exact demonstration of of Miles's uh, disruptor speech. And everyone's on your side here when you're breaking stuff that everyone wants broken. All these little glass things we've been tiptoeing around for the whole thing. It's fun and games and then until it isn't. So that right there, that shot where she just looked in the lens, Jess. So a, the camera was supposed to tilt down when she threw that glass down. And so we are getting ready to do the shot. The camera is rolling and she, and, and I go, okay, let's just practice. You know, you're not going to throw it, but just practice. I'm going to say one, two, three, and then throw. And so, uh, but when I said that she actually did it (laughs) and then she realized we were just practicing and she looked right in the camera lens and that's, that's what I put in the movie. So you're welcome, Jess. I realized after the movie was finished, would it have been funnier to have it be? I think that belonged to Elton John. I don't know. I also don't know if anyone can hear me right now because the movie's gone very loud at this point. So <laughs> if you can't hear me, I'll, I'll talk to you on the other end, but I'll keep yakking just in case. I still have two of the little, those little like glass balls that rolled across. I took two of the smaller ones and just slipped them into my jacket pocket. And I still have them there actually. It's just kind of like a little thing. I'll slip my hand in my jacket pocket and feel these little glass beads, the glass bead game. (laughs) Catherine here. And then you can, first of all, Leslie's, physical comedy there and then Catherine was on wires being slid across there she's kind of blocked by the fire but it was such a funny effect when you saw it so now here even your partner will tell you you need to stop uh there's a bunch of different very talented effects vendors who we worked with throughout this whole movie uh weta digital did all of this fire stuff at the ends and we had practical elements but it's augmented because we couldn't have the fire that big what you see behind her so all of this is some really beautiful effects work and then a company a french company called Buff, did all the uh helped us out with some of the glass a lot of that glass shattering was candy glass on the day which looked great, but it was kind of yellow. And so we did some digital cleanup and and made it more transparent. And that company uh, did a great job. But we had a lot of terrific effects vendors on this. And then this choice to go, go big. I don't know. I kind of, at some point, the fact that it escalates to this level, the fact that especially coming off of the first movie that the movie kind of requires this. And so we just go there. Um, to me, <laughs> I just, I found very entertaining. <laughs> and then of course the tag with Daryl. So again, all of this, incredible effects work by very our very talented team 
over at Weta. So for this uh, slow motion scene that's about to come up, it's an interesting thing with shooting slow motion because it's so, so hard to um, know that you're shooting slow motion and not act in slow motion. (laughs) It's kind of the equivalent of like when you're like on Star Wars, when we were, you know, firing the the guns, like the, the temptation to say pew when you're shooting them. Yeah, I think I've said before, I think Laura Dern actually is saying that in a couple of the shots. It's very, it's, it's very tempting. And similarly, it's tough when you know we're shooting at a high frame rate like this not to act to that. So this was all, we shot this at like whatever it was, an incredibly high frame rate. And, um, but this is all happening in real speed. So this would take like two seconds. It was just her sprinting across. And then we would... Uh, and then we would all gather around, or this, for example, this looked like took a second and a half, her running across and then like going back. And, and we would then all go and gather around the monitor and they would play it back off the camera at the slow motion speed. And I would set my phone up and play uh, Mona Lisa, <laughs> play, play the Nat King Cole Mona Lisa. And it was, it was really fun, actually. Um, it felt like a little preview of the edit. Burning the Mona Lisa. So there's a uh, there's a great quote John Cleese talking about um, a fish called Wanda talking about the scene where Michael Palin kills the dogs and they asked him like how do you get away with that in a movie and not have the audience turn on you and Cleese said I think a large part of it has to do with the casting of the dogs and that's kind of how I felt about this Mona Lisa bit. I mean it was it was it needed to feel like a sacred cow, but the Mona Lisa was kind of perfect because it's so much of a sacred cow that I think I expected the audience would be in on the joke. And, um, and it needed to be, the thing is it also, it needs to be something where it, it feels like the thing that nobody wants to break. It can't just be a more expensive piece of glass or a, or a bigger piece of furniture or something. It, it, it can't just be something that is expensive. It needs to be something where, oh my God, nobody wants her to actually break that. But that's what it requires to actually break this power structure and actually uh, take Miles Braun down. And then the instant she undercuts him and the others have nothing left to lose, they, they jump like rats off of a sinking ship. We tried in a couple of takes, like her slapping him at the end here, and we 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 just didn't need it. The way that she landed this final line in that last little look, it was just, it worked so well. And again, I love Peg's big beaming smile. Peg is just a Helen fangirl. And yeah, with this, it's I, I don't read this as them having a moral change of heart or something. I think this is they are still absolutely shitheads. They're they're only turning on him because they no longer can get anything from him. He's been kicked out of office and now they're all writing their tell all memoirs. <laughs> Big, beautiful, 
Big, beautiful effect shots. A lot of effects in this movie. I'm going to call out all our wonderful effects vendors. This was practical. We actually sent, rigged those lights on boats, sent them out there, and and we were out here like early, early, early in the morning to get that glow in the sky. And we had all these shots set up and ready to go. We had like 15 minutes to get all of them. So we had to go very quickly. And then I, I brought up a picture of the Mona Lisa and showed it to Janelle and said, hold your hands kind of like that. And I said, okay, and so we're going for sort of the smiling bonnet. She goes, yeah, I got it. <laughs> Janelle Monet Lisa, ladies and gentlemen. That last little gleam in the eye. Uh, that's Glass Onion. Uh, these end credit portraits that are coming up, I want to call out, are um, were done by a very talented friend of mine, Vanessa uh, Vanessa McKee, who is a, a, an extraordinarily talented uh, artist. And uh, uh, Zach Johnson, who's my cousin, did the portraits for the first one. And uh, you can find Vanessa and Zach on uh, Twitter and Instagram. And please commission them to do work. They're amazing artists. Uh, that's it, guys. Guys, thank you so much for listening to me talk over over the whole movie. I, I hope it uh i hope it wasn't terrible <laughs> uh thanks for watching glass onion goodbye